Amen. So love that story of hope from our good sister, uh, Helena Harrison. So many cautionary tales in there about being the new person, and then all of a sudden someone else new comes, and then she gets dropped. I mean, I just kind of love all of that and all of the implications that that has for us as a church and as a family to make sure we're doing life as a family and we aren't just chasing the new, <laughs> the new shiny thing and that we are being very intentional about the way we care for all those that uh, come in among us and, uh, and uh, come to know the Lord and to be discipled by Him or to be discipled by us as we, we walk together. Um, if you were here uh, last week when we opened our series entitled uh, In the Wilderness, and you probably heard me say it was going to be from the book of Numbers and I was going to be covering 10 chapters, you probably gasped, right? You were probably like, this is going to be the theological equivalent of reading from the side panel of a box of Raisin Bran. He is going to walk us through some of the most boring details of our entire lives. But the beautiful thing about reading from the side panel of a box of Raisin Bran is that it doesn't mean much when you're kids, but when you become a parent and you've got a child with allergies or you become a person that's serious about your health and intake and you want to know exactly what you're putting in your body, you do. You are that person who places their glasses down on the edge of their nose and start reading the side panel of boxes of Raisin Bran, as boring as that might look. Um, I want to give you a couple of opportunities this morning to kind of stay engaged. If you're like, numbers, are you kidding me? I'm only going to do two chapters today, and that's chapters 11 and 12. But if you're like, man, I just, I don't know, I'm, I don't know if there's enough caffeine to keep me in the game. Let me give you some some milestones, some mental milestones. If you're a heavy note taker, here's your opportunity. Be on the lookout for what the Bible says about itself, doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that you may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. So what is the father in saying about himself, about his son, about his spirit? What is the, what is the text saying uh, about my sin? What is it saying about my sanctification? What is it saying about my service, right? Uh, or what is it saying about my, my witness into the lives of others? Be on the lookout for them, some of those. If that doesn't do it for you, uh, think about this particular journey through the book of Numbers like a time-elapsed video. Everybody familiar with time-elapsed videos? Uh, you've ever looked at those on maybe like the Nature Channel? Remember the first time you saw like how a seed actually becomes a flower? Remember that? Aren't those cool? I mean, some of the most mundane moments in life that we often just experience the before and after when you see it time-lapse, it's like, this is incredible. I didn't know that all that was happening beneath the ground and all that has to go into actually bringing a plant or a flower into full blossom. Well, you are the thing that's being progressively revealed in full blossom. If you remember from last week, what we did was we kind of gave you this overarching meta-narrative concerning the book of Numbers, that what you are watching is actually a time-lapsed video of what we know in the New Testament as progressive sanctification. So we know that in a moment we get righteous standing with God. We are sanctified. But we also know that over time God is gradually doing something in our lives to make us more like Christ. This is a New Testament reality. Well, the thing is, when you read it in the Scripture, it seems like it's happening in an instant. But the reality is it happens over all of the years that the Lord allows you to live on this earth and to know Him as His. He is progressively sanctifying you and I. Remember what we said last week also, that when you look at the book of Numbers, just to keep you from being bored and stay fully tuned in and to see yourself in this, the narrative, what you're seeing is how God progressively crucifies the old man because the old folks that came out of Egypt are not going to be the same people that can go into the promised land. This is your story of sanctification because who you were when God saved you is not going to be the same person that you will be when God brings you or welcomes you into the arms of the Savior. Okay? So again, just give you some, some handlebars just in case you're like, man, not numbers. Are you kidding me? And here we go. So we're going to pray, and then I'm going to walk us through today's story, uh, chapters 11 and 12, and I hope that your hearts are blessed. Uh, Father, in the name of Jesus, as you know, um, we've, we've, um, we've done this once before in talking to the, the group at 9 o'clock. This, this is your audience for 11, and I'm asking you, Lord God, to work through me um, for your glory and for their benefit and edification. You know the unique collection of lives. You know all of the inventory that they bring to the table. You know every issue that's included in these hearts. You know where they're headed. You know what they're headed into. You know the burdens that they carry. You know every single thing about them that I cannot know. 
And I ask, oh God, that you would just kind of move me out of the way, empty me, and yet fill me with your spirit so that I could be effective, Lord God, in uh, helping your people uh, become who they need to be in Christ in light of all those things that they bring to the table in their lives. Um, and so while it be the same message for 9-11, Lord God, they're different people. So would you give the unique emphasis of your Holy Spirit, a demonstration of your spirit, as Paul would say, uh, that only you can bring. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, again, as we talk about in the wilderness, why did we choose this series? I believe that this series is important for us, for you, for you and I, uh, because it should serve as a great analog, something that we can look into to see how God might want to use us during this season of the pandemic, right? It's not maybe this is, I don't know if you consider this to be your wilderness, but it is a, a period of time in our collective lives where we are working through some very unwanted circumstances. I don't think there's anybody before me who desires the pandemic, even if it has brought about a certain boom in your stock portfolio if you were prior to the pandemic invested in Zoom, uh, or if it brought about a certain uh, enhancement of skill uh, because you're finally able to work from home like never before because your company was really kind of shy about that and now they're fully into it. Regardless of any of the benefits that we have felt coming from the pandemic, nobody is signing up for this. Am I correct? Amen. That's where you insert the amen. It's like no one officially signed up for this. We would not want this on ourselves. So much so, while Israel desperately desired to be out of the bondage of Egypt, none of them would have wished a wilderness upon themselves. They would just love to have been teleported into the promised land, as would I love to be at the time that I gave my life to Christ. I didn't want to go straight to heaven. I still wanted to do some stuff down here. Um, but I definitely did not want to work through any kind of wilderness activity. So this is not a desire of anyone. But what do we do in the meantime? What do we do? How do we live life? And so I believe that the book of Numbers has something to say to us. I believe it is very instructional uh, for the lives of a people like us who are working through the wilderness of a pandemic. Um, now, just to catch you up, if you were not here last week, what we discovered in the first 10 chapters was that God was setting the tone within Israel. He taught them back in the book of Leviticus how a holy God could actually have relationship with an unholy people. Uh, the, the book of Leviticus unpacks all of these painstaking details about how to set up a tabernacle and what uh, sacrifices needed to be made in order to deal with this firewall that exists between us. He's holy, we're not. How can we approach such a righteous God as this? But then after we were given the particulars and the details of the book of Leviticus, then they were brought on to, to actually shown how to live in light of God's presence amongst them. So they were taught how to build a tabernacle at the end of the book of Exodus. They got the blueprint given to Moses. They were taught how the details of the tabernacle would work out for relationship with them. And then all of that was planted in the midst of them. And in the first 10 chapters of the book of Numbers, God showed them how he would sit in the midst of them and each one of the armies, each one of the tribes should be situated around the tabernacle. This was a picture that God wanted to provide of how they should prioritize his presence above all else. As we closed out the 10th chapter, what we saw was God give them this instruction through his servant Moses, where he would say, now, watch this. Now that your lives are arranged around me, I want you to pay very careful attention to me. My presence should be front and center, which was the title of last week's message. When, the, uh, when you see my presence move, when you see my presence move, you move. When you see my presence pause, you pause. That was lesson number one. Now, after the very first iteration of God's presence getting up and moving and the people moving with it, the next, very next chapter, the people begin to do this. They started to complain. And that's where we are. You heard it in the text already. We're going to go in a little bit more detail in just a moment. But the people complained. What did they complain about? They complained about the fact that they did not have the same foods that they had available to them in the land of Egypt, and they really spoke against the manna that God had provided for them in this current season. But they weren't the only ones who complained. There were complaints that took place even in the heart of Moses. Moses cried out to the Lord and was like, man, you got these people who really are disobedient and hard-headed. You want me to lead them? There was even complaints amongst the second-level leadership team uh, where it was Aaron and Miriam who actually complained against Moses. And so chapters 11 and 12 are just filled with nothing but complaints. 
Now, what's happening in this moment is I believe that we are being given a beautiful picture of what our own hearts can look like during moments of crisis. But before we get there and I kind of unpack what the language of the heart is during a term of crisis, I want you to think about exactly what God did. The people complained first and foremost about the difference in the menu that they had. They cried out to the Lord. They were like, man, you know, we had fish and we didn't cost us anything. Uh, we had all these other things. We had the leeks. We had the onions. Uh, and this is, and we ate it and it was awesome. We were back there in Egypt. And you could imagine just from their perspective how good and how delicious it might have been. Uh, right? I mean, so, so, because there's nothing fundamentally wrong with fish and leeks. But the problem was that they desired that over against what God had provided. And so the Lord said, all right, you want, um, you want, you want meat? I'll give you meat. And so the Lord, who uh, is in control of the wind and everything else, caused, I mean, scores of quail to blow into the camp. They said that there was, there was quail uh, uh, on the ground from the camp as far out as a full day's journey all the way around. And that the folks who wanted quail went out there and got the quail. And as they were eating it, he gave them enough quail to last for more than a month. As they were eating the quail, the Bible tells us in uh, chapter uh, 11, it says that while they were yet eating, the meat was still in their teeth. They were actively chewing with their mouth full. Man, this is good. How did you fix yours? I boiled mine. I fricasseed mine. You know what I'm saying? I just put mine in the grease with the feathers on it. I, I didn't care. I was just glad to have anything other than manna. While the meat was yet in their teeth, the Bible says that the Lord caused a plague to fall down. And those who desired the quail, they died. They died. What's going on here? Now, it wasn't all of Israel. It was just a certain group. But what's going on? Why did they die? They died because of the conversation of their heart, not necessarily because of the quail. You see, God had given them quail before. They had cried out before, and we're going to cover this in just a moment, but I, but I want you to hear something. What, what had happened through the complaints of Israel is that they had officially bitten off more than they could chew, and that's the title of today's message, is Biting Off More Than You Can Chew. I believe that when we complain against God, that is officially what we are putting ourselves on a, on a trajectory to do, and that is biting off more than we can actually chew. Well, what is it that caused them to bite off more than they can chew? It was the posture and the disposition of their heart, which is why the point of today's message, not the title, the point of today's message is this. We need to be very careful about the conversation of our heart during a crisis. We need to be very careful. We need to be careful, full of care. We need to be very careful about the conversation of our heart during a crisis. Ladies and gentlemen, we are in a form of crisis. And if the pandemic isn't your crisis, all of our lives will be faced with some kind of crisis in the future. Now, the reason that we need to be careful about the conversation of our heart during a time of crisis is because we all unanimously will encounter a crisis at some point, even if you don't consider the pandemic to be a crisis. You may have gotten over this one, or you may have learned how to weather this one. But, but the conversation of the heart during a crisis will always include at least three ingredients that I've learned from the book of Numbers that I believe are common to all human beings. Within Israel, there was, at the time of their crisis, crying, craving, and criticism. There was crying, craving, and criticism. Now, these are not in and of themselves all bad but these are the conversations of the heart during a crisis. They are. Amen. We can, we, this is a talking church. You can do that, right? So crying, craving, and criticism are natural things. They are reflexes of the human heart when we don't like what's currently happening in our lives. Some of us may be more criers than critiquers. Some of us may be more cravers than criers. But all of us do a little bit of all three and a lot of one or the other based on how we are built. But it is just a part of the fallen heart. It naturally, during a time of craving, will cry, it will crave, and it will critique. Now, what's interesting about all of these is that we have to be very careful about them, that they do not put us in a position with God where we end up biting off more than we can chew. So what do we do with this? Let's go. When we look at the first three verses in Numbers chapter 11, uh, these are the words. Follow them very carefully. Don't miss anything. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. 
And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and fire, the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed the outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. Some, and so they named the name of that place Tibera because of the fire of the Lord that burned among them. First and foremost, I want you to learn that there is a difference between crying out to the Lord and crying out against the Lord. Here's how I know. In the book of Exodus, the same audience of people cried out to the Lord by virtue of the suffering that they had in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 3, the Bible says that the Lord says, I have heard the cries of my people. By virtue of their taskmasters in Egypt and the harsh labor when they took away the straw that they used to make bricks, they cried out. He says, I have heard it, and I am come down, and I am going to do something about it. So the Lord is not offended by crying during crisis. But there is a fundamental difference between crying out to the Lord and crying out against the Lord. There is. As by way of example, imagine, if you will, if I sold you a car, Right? You drove the vehicle home, and, and on your way home, one of the wheels was shaking. You pulled it up in the driveway and recognized that all the gauges were out of whack. You took it to your mechanic and recognized that it had blown some sort of gasket. You, I don't know, pulled the gear shift knob down and it fell off in your hand. You reached for the radio, and you couldn't adjust the volume. And you called me, and you were like, Pastor Rod, the vehicle that you gave me, the vehicle that you gave me, I mean, it, 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 it does this, it does that, and it does this, and I'm wondering if you can help me. That's crying out to the pastor. Well, let's say you called me, and you were like, Rod, <laughs> not even prefaced by pastor, Rod, man, I can't believe this car you gave me, Right? I mean, your top lip is quivering or whatever, and you start to enumerate everything that's wrong with that car. And, and I was like, hey, hey, listen, I want to, before I can even talk, you slammed the phone down. And then you went to Google, and you pulled up Gospel Hope Church. And you just clicked on one-star review. And you just begin to unpack in several paragraphs how I had led you astray, how I had done you wrong, how I had, you know, messed up your life how I lacked integrity, how I wasn't willing to step in and create solutions. Now you're not crying out to me, you're crying out against me. Now, I don't want to put anybody in a weird spot. That's not going to happen between us. But what I'm saying to you is, you see the difference between crying out to and crying out against? Have you ever been in a mall or in a grocery store and seen a child or two different children, and you could tell the difference between crying out to the parent and crying out against? Right? There's one that is, that is weeping because they have deep, heartfelt need that induces tears. They need their mommy or they need their daddy. And there's that other child who is crying against the mom as a declaration of war because she will not give the child their way. Have you seen these two children? Understand this, that that is exactly what our cries do. They have a particular tone. It is either a declaration of woe to the Lord or it is a declaration of war against him because I am voicing my dissatisfaction not with the outcomes of life but with his performance in my life. Well then, Pastor Rob, we are convinced that crying out against the Lord is a bad thing to do. But how do I know? How do I safeguard my heart from being one who cries out against the Lord versus being one who cries out to the Lord. What do we do? Do I just have to, just, just to bite my tongue? Because no, the Lord hears the conversation of the heart. What do we do? I believe that the difference is how we guard the heart. So I've, while I've given you three big problems that can occur during a crisis or three big things that will always happen during a crisis, we will cry, we will crave, and we will criticize. What are the solutions? While all the problems can start with the letter C, all the solutions will start with the letter G. So be on the lookout for all my note takers. So the difference between the heart that cries out to the Lord and the heart that cries out against the Lord is guarding my heart. We've all heard this, guard your heart because out of it flows the issues of life. Great passage, memorize it. But how? How does one guard the heart? I believe we guard the heart in this way because the things that cause us to complain and cry out against the Lord are actually the enemies of our faith and things that want to tamper with our relationship with the Lord that are oftentimes stood up and propped up by Satan. I believe that we guard the heart by doing this. It's going to sound somewhat preachy, but it's also somewhat practical. We guard the heart by establishing what I call a perimeter of praise. 
a perimeter of praise. That is, around my life, I want to set up during all times in my life, according to Psalm 34, it says, I will bless the Lord at all times, not just good times. I will bless the Lord at all times, and his praise shall continually be in my mouth. This is how I set up a perimeter of praise, not just waiting for when I've had a great windfall, not just waiting until I refinance at 1%, not just waiting until I get my favorite automobile or my dream job, not waiting until my, my, you know, my, my, my biggest dreams come through and then I want to come to church and praise the Lord. No, I praise the Lord at all times allows me to set up a perimeter of praise that helps me to be very careful not to be a person who cries out against the Lord but cries out to him. The things that call you to complain against the Lord, they are the enemies of your faith. Trust me, they are. At the end of the book of Numbers, excuse me, at the end of chapter 10, listen to what Moses' words were in Numbers chapter 10, verses 35 and 36. And whenever the ark would set out, Moses said, arise. This is Moses. What Moses would say this, this is his praise. This is his perimeter of praise. Notice this language. Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, arise, Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. And let those who hate you flee from before you. And when it rested, he said, return, O Lord, to the 10,000 thousands of Israel. In other words, in our lives as we're following Lord, the Lord and we're prioritizing his presence, we need to recognize that praise has a very, it's not just poetic, it has a very military and provocative element to it. I need to establish a perimeter of praise in my life. I need to be the kind of person that when my eyes open in the morning, I can thank God for as simple, something as simple as these eyes are Thank you, Jesus. When I spin around and pivot and put my feet on the floor, Lord, I thank you that I can at least feel carpet and I still have feet. If you stand up and you don't have any joint pain today, thank you, Lord, for joint pain, uh, joint-free knee pain as I make my way to the sink to brush my teeth. Oh, thank you, Lord, I still got teeth. I mean, this might seem incredibly mundane and silly. It might sound like the conversation of old people who, who, or who've gone through tons, but no, People who establish a perimeter of praise in their life, who have a heart discipline of thanking the Lord for all things at all time, even when it's mundane and simplistic, their hearts are typically guarded against complaining against the Lord because they are saturated with so much gratitude for all the things that he has done that they are not tripped up by the things that he has yet to do. The difference maker between those who cry out against and cry out to is what? Guarding the heart. Remember, they all start with G's. Guarding the heart. If you're still wondering how to, I think we not only need to praise the Lord at times when they're at all times, but we need to be proactive in our praise. Psalm 150 gives a great example. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the trumpet. Praise him with the lute. Praise him with the heart. Praise him with the tambourine. Praise him with dance. Praise him with the strings and the pipe. Praise him with the sounding cymbals. Praise him with the loud sounding clash of cymbals. Let everything that have breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. But wait a minute. You just named a bunch of stuff that didn't have breath. These were instruments. So in other words, Establishing a perimeter of praise in my life means not only does everything that have breath praise the Lord, but even the inanimate things around me ought to be instruments that encourage and, and, and call me to praise the Lord. This is what it looks like in the lives of those who would guard their hearts so that my cries, I'm going to cry in a crisis. I am going to cry out to somebody. But I want my heart to be guarded so my cries are not against the Lord and his character and against his provision, but they are for him. Simply put, we should praise the Lord at all times and with everything. Praise the Lord at all times and with everything. In other words, you should have had praise and worship before you got here. And not because life was super awesome as you felt it, but because you should praise the Lord at all times. And you want to establish a perimeter around your heart that protects you against approaching the Lord in an ungrateful way. We've got a second set of verses. Thank you, Jesse. Was that you that squeaked out of yeah? <laughs> we'll take that. Love that. Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. Now the rabble, pay attention, now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again, saying, 
Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. Cucumbers, listen to the recipe. Cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic, the obey, the salt, the pepper. Right? You hear it? There you go. But now, but now, the deep fried, the, the canola oil, the Crisco, whatever they use, right? But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now, I want you to hear something. I don't think the Lord is offended by fish or cucumber or garlic. Notice that it isn't the list. It isn't the meal that's making God mad, but it is the heart disposition toward it. In our lives, I want you to understand that, that, that quail represents the, the, just the, the natural things that we might desire in our life, and there may be nothing in and of themselves wrong with the thing that we desire. But it is the trajectory that it takes my heart on. So very simply put, we need to be very careful about the conversation of our heart, not only to make sure we're not crying out against the Lord, but we're crying to Him, but also make sure that we are not craving for things that lead us away from the Lord, or we at least, because we will crave, we, are un- we understand how to qualify these cravings to say, ooh, I've got a desire for something that is going to lead my life on a trajectory that takes me away from where God wants me to be. Because you and I will crave. We are fallen creatures. We have desires for things, not the, the, the item, nothing wrong with fish. Jesus ate fish, right? So nothing wrong with fish, right? But the, but the issue is, where did it take their hearts? It took their hearts, to, it, their hearts assumed a posture that would lead them away from God because they compared the fish to the manna. I want you to take note of who started this movement. It says, now the rabble that was amongst them. Now think about Israel as an, as an analog of you and I. That means that in my life, there is a category. There is, in my life somewhere, there is a group of appetites. There's a group that, there, there, there's a, there's a, there are voices in me. Now, you know, they'll try to talk to me afterwards and pray for me. But there are, there, are, there are desires in me, in me, the person who is actively saved, bought, belonging, straight up, in relationship with the Lord. There are parts of me that still desire against God. There's rabble in me. So, so the rabble is not a, for them, the rabble was a group among them. But as we're looking at them, as they're our analog, they are a body. We are a body, Right? And there are parts of me that desire things that the desire itself is not bad, but where the desire will take me is. And so here's the word, the thing that I want you to note is that just because something is natural does not mean it is morally neutral. Hear me carefully. We have many desires in us that are natural. They will naturally, they don't have to be stirred, they don't have to be prompted, they don't have to be tempted. They are natural. But just because they are natural does not mean they are morally neutral. They can lead us on a trajectory that is antithetical to where God is trying to take us. Understand where these desires would take Israel. It's saying, Lord, I desire the times in my life where I was in bondage. Notice they didn't just say, we like fish and wish uh, we could get manna, uh, we could get a manna and fish recipe. They said, oh, when we were back in Egypt, we ate fish at no cost. And now all we have to look at is manna. You hear what I'm saying? They had a desire to be back at a place that God had come and delivered them from. That was the trajectory of their desires. It wasn't the appetite. It was where it would take them. And so while quail represents the natural but not morally neutral areas of our life. It is manna that represents what I would call the raisin bran of life, right? I mean, just the, the Bible describes for us very locally and historically that it was like a coriander seed, just kind of a small thing that they could process and make in many different ways. I, if, if you want a kind of a modern-day equivalent, maybe it was like grits with no butter or salt, right? Maybe it was, it was you know, maybe it was like, you know, cream of wheat, with no special processing. Maybe, you know, may, maybe it was like, a, like an oatmeal, not the packages that have the strawberries dried in. I mean, just a straight one from the can with the guy with the big cap, right? I mean, just, just oatmeal, right? And they had gotten tired of it. But it represented the goodness of the Lord. 
I, I'm often reminded of how good things taste when I haven't had food in a long time. Has anybody ever been at that place where you were starving and even the most mundane of meals became incredibly delicious? In the Lord allowing us to look at our cravings, it allows us to see who and what we have a great appetite for. Am I starving for the Lord's work in my life or am I craving for my own work in my life? Am I craving for my own history, my own comfort? I believe this is what cravings are emblematic of, but I've described the problem enough. While the heart during a crisis will cry out against the Lord and will crave for things that will lead us away from the Lord, and I know that if I want to kind of keep myself from crying out against the Lord and I want to cry to the Lord that I need to guard my heart, well, what do I need to do if I want to safeguard myself against the cravings that could lead me away from him? It starts with the letter. I need to garden my heart. I need to garden it, right? I need to garden my heart. Psalm 119 tells us how. It says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The, the English picture doesn't do us justice. The literal Hebrew vocabulary says, I have hoarded your word. Has anybody ever seen the show Hoarders? Talking about when you open the door on a person's heart house, there's nowhere to sit. An outside entity can't even enter in. You have to turn sideways and scoot to get between all of the stuff. In other words, my heart should look like the home of a hoarder when it comes to the amount of word that is in me so that ideas that are antithetical to my relationship with Christ don't have a place to sit. Am I, am I too loud for this church? I, just really, I get the rando clap and then, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean... I, I should be chock full of word, proactively, chock full of word so that, so that, so that, so that again, ideas cannot find a home. It's like, I don't belong here. If this isn't, if this isn't, I don't feel comfortable in this place. This is what we want to happen to our cravings when they open the door of our heart. Well, how then do I guard in my heart to be a place like that? So obviously it's reading God's word. That's one. But, but there's something else. I also need to be heeding God's word. I know that this sounds overly simplistic, but I want you to consider for a moment the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 13. It will not appear on the screen. This is the parable of the sower. I will explain the parable to you. Jesus told us about four different types of soil and that he says, when I preach my word, the soil is like a seed. And there's some seed that lands on the surface, and that seed gets stolen by the adversary. If you've ever tried to plant grass, you know exactly what this analogy looks like. The moment you try to plant grass in your backyard, if you don't cover that seed or hide that seed or that seed doesn't fall beneath the surface, there are groups of birds that text and call one another from other states <laughs> that come in town. Robin, hey, listen, I know you're out here trying to get the worm. I know it's early, but excuse my call. We need some backup over here. And they call in all these other birds to come in and swarm into our backyards and into our lives to take up all the seed that they can what? See. This is why when you're planting grass, you always put hay. If you have it, and also in addition to hay, you need to do something to the soil so that the seed is not readily visible. The adversary are the birds, readily looking for word that has not been dealt with, that has not been processed, that has been enjoyed, word that has been preached but not heated, word that has been podcasted, books that have been read and just enjoyed and giggled and talked about over coffee, but not word that has been cultivated and placed deeply within the heart for practice. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I trust me, there are some of you that don't eat any more biblical principles. You just need to take them more seriously and deepen them more, in, in, more particularly in your life. I mean, there's just, man, in, in American culture, man, we have access to so much word. I mean, you could dial up a hundred of your favorite preachers by the time I get done with this if you're sitting at home watching. I mean, you could be watching two to three preachers at a time if you've got a split-screen TV probably. I mean, just getting copious amounts of words. But there's no beauty in hearing great messages. Are you heeding them? Are you practicing them? Is it going beneath the surface? Is it taking root and producing fruit? And so Jesus tells us about seed that fell on the surface. He told us about seed that went shallowly, and then as soon as it sprouted up, persecution caused that fruit to fade away. 
He told us about a strangled seed that as soon as it grew up in Matthew chapter 13, as soon as the seed grew up, it also, because the soil around it wasn't properly gardened, that other things that didn't belong in the soil came and choked out the growth. So you had a, a, a stolen seed, a shallow seed, a strangled seed, three different types of soil that all reflected a heart that hadn't been properly gardened until you finally got to the striving seed. And it was the one, the one seed that went down and it multiplied itself. And so ladies and gentlemen, I, I, uh, <laughs> I present to you that the desire to, to, to kind of smother out some of the cravings in our lives that may be leading us against the Christ may not be the need to find more word but to get the same word you're getting more deeply applied in your life. I share it with the nine o'clock and some people kind of sat back and looked at me crazy, but let me say this to you. It is easy. This is not a statement of pride. This is a statement of just practice and reality. I've been preaching since 1997. It is easy for me to prepare messages. It is hard for messages to prepare me. Piecing together three points, a joke and an illustration coming up with stories from my childhood, pulling from something that happened for me this week and kind of spreading it on the bread and making you laugh and go, ha! That's not that hard. But allowing the Word of God to work on me so that my heart is not just standing up here giving you a spiritual theological book report so that the same work that I need to happen in you is happening in me. That's hard. And I'm spending all week with the Word. I'm the one, I'm part of planning the series. I knew what was coming. So if it's hard for me, if it, if it, well, let me say this. When I say hard, if it requires intentionality for me, I know it will require intentionality for you. So don't take the exposure to good word, good messages, great devotionals, and wonderful books. Don't take your exposure to them for granted and assume that because you have great volumes of them that you are somehow exempt from this tragedy of craving against the Lord. The word has to not only lay on the surface of the heart, but be taken down deeply. Our hearts need to be intentional. We need to be intentional in, in our heart's preparation so that we can reproduce the fruit of God's word, or else we will always fall for the cravings that lead away from God. This truth applies deeply to me. Again, what I'm saying, this is the, I'm, I'm, we just throw in seed right now. When you get home or You got to throw straw, you got to till soil, you got to make it ready. The memorability of the points, I hope that it's helpful, but it is not going to produce practice. That's you. That's all on both of us. So final, final, uh, final point, just in case you get a little bit weary and wondering where we're going to come out of the tunnel. Here it is. In Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of a Cushite woman, the Cushite woman who he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman, and they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. And now the man, and now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And immediately following that, the Lord has a conference call. He says, Tell Moses, uh, tell Aaron and Miriam to come here. And the Lord meets with them, and when the cloud descends on them, and they, there's a little bit of rebuke that happens, and the cloud ascends, then Miriam has leprosy, because God was upset with the fact that she spoke against his way of doing things. She critiqued how the Lord was getting it done. So she didn't have any question that the Lord was indeed working, but she wasn't satisfied with the how he was working. And because she wasn't satisfied with the how he was working, her mouth crafted a critique that got her in trouble with God. Ladies and gentlemen, I am at risk of critiquing the Lord's ways when it doesn't work according to my plan. Critiquing the Lord's ways is one of the things that we want to ward against. So we know that we don't want to cry against him, therefore we do what? We must guard the heart. We don't want to crave against him, therefore we must guard in the heart. We don't want to critique or criticize the Lord's ways, so we must now guide the heart. We need to guide the heart rather than being guided by the heart. Please cancel. Cancel culture. Officially get on board with this. Cancel this ridiculous notion that you need to follow your heart. You need to guide your heart. 
Proverbs chapter 16, verses 1 through 9, gives us a way to help us to guide our hearts. Follow me carefully. When it comes to guiding my heart, I need to be very careful about how I critique what's happening in my world and what's, what God is doing around me in light of the plans that I have crafted. I believe that Proverbs chapter 16, verses 1 through 9, give us this beautiful pericope or this pattern of how we should view the unique coalescence of our plan and God's providence when it comes to what's happening. Now, this is a lot of text, but hang on. You can read it at home as you're cultivating your heart. Proverbs chapter 16 says, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the Lord is from but, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the plans of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord's, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for his purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. In other words, to the nth degree, God has accounted for the human experience, right? Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. So every single unrighteous act, God is taking inventory and fully aware, right? So by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness and great revenues with injustice. In other words, better is grits with no salt with righteousness than a full-on fish fry and having the Lord's wrath on your back, right? The, listen to this final verse. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Sandwiched in between these great principles are five big ideas that I believe if you hold on to, you can help your heart not complain, not to cry, and not to critique when you see God doing something differently from what you may have planned. Here they are. The big idea, number one, I make plans, but he makes planets. It's preachy and teachy. I make plans, but he makes the planet. What does that mean? That when I am planning, he is the one who has created the entire context in which I have my life. Let me give you a mere local illustration. Sometimes I can hear my son upstairs making plans. He's talking to his boys. Yeah, we're going to go to the volleyball game, and then after that, we're going to this, and then we're going to go to IHOP, and then we're going to slide over here and spend the night at this person's house. None of these plans are wrong. They're bad. But I made the planet. So while these plans are good in and of themselves, I don't have a problem with your plan. It has to be recontextualized by my providence. So you bring the plan down to me and you submit it to me and be open for the fact that I'm just like, okay, you can do numbers one, three, and six. And when you do one, three, and six, you'll do them at seven, 12, and then two. You understand? So when we are planning our lives, we need to plan like it's a proposal. Lord, this is what I want to do. I'm going to go for it, but I'm also submitting them to you providentially. I'm planning, but you made the planet. You're under, you, you have a time frame. You have purposes. You have schedules. You have things that you're trying to do in my life, and I want to be open to it. And when I'm not open to God's plan, what happens? People go to stomping back up to their room. Amon don't do that. He's a good boy. He do. He man, that boy, he got, he got a heart toward the Lord. So now, I make plans, but he makes planets. I make plans, but he makes purposes. Man, I would never want to be just full throttle on a plan and then find out that it was antithetical to one of the Lord's purposes. I make plans, but he makes me pay attention to my motives. With every plan, Lord, submit it to him. Say, Lord, help me to understand that I'm trying to accomplish something that really matches what you desire, that really equates to righteousness. I make plans, but he, remember he says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he'll make peace with even his enemies. I make plans, but he is the one who gives them peace. He brings the peace to the plan. I make plans, but he's the one who places my steps. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, we must, we must train our hearts in having a healthy dose of God's sovereignty and providence. These are not just great high-handed theological words. They are fundamental to appreciating the, the landscape of life that God has given you and how you navigate within this planet, even though you have plans. He's not against your plan. He just wants to curate those plans in a way that we would see that his plan is superior and worship him accordingly. I need to guide my heart rather than being guided by my heart. And one of the ways I do it is to always make sure I'm remembering those precepts from Proverbs 16. Guiding the heart. Here we go. You ready? 
Guiding the heart helps us to navigate a crisis with more grace than grief. Guiding my heart, in this way, helps me to navigate a crisis with more grace than grief. But when I let my heart guide me, it's the inverse. When I let my heart guide me, I navigate a crisis with more grief than grace. So, I believe that in all of this, this crying, these cravings, and this critique, which are very much a part of the human response to crisis, that the gospel is God's greatest response to the human crisis. The human crisis is one where we find ourselves in a life that isn't quite going the way we planned. I'm not getting the level of satisfaction that I want, even though I'm, I'm, I'm deeply satisfied in one regard, but deeply unsatisfied in another. It is the, the gospel where God speaks into the human crisis and says, bring me your cries. You're going to cry, but cry out to me. Don't cry out against me. The fallenness of this world will produce tears. The fallenness of this world will produce broken plans. The fallenness of this world will produce broken priorities, unfulfilled dreams and ambitions. The brokenness of this world. But would you bring them to me? Will you cry out to me? Because I've got a solution to your crisis. The human crisis is not a pandemic. The greatest of all human crises is the fact that we live a life that is separated from God. And he says, I've got a solution. And I wanted to deploy that solution in the midst of a crisis so that you can cry not against your circumstances, but cry out to me about it. The gospel is God's response to the human crisis. We all know that we have cravings. Apostle Paul described it when he said, man, there's things that I know I should be doing that I don't do. And all of us have been in, the, in that place, the crosshairs of our own conscience. Why do I keep doing things that seem to be contrary to my own well-being? Those cravings are addressed in the gospel. God says, you need to be made brand new, and I can do that in you, in Christ, because I want to camp out in the middle of your life via my Holy Spirit. The gospel is God's response to our crisis. God knows that this life is not that, that we desire a better life than this. And therefore, this is what he proposes, what he promises, and what he offers in the invitation of the gospel. So that he can convert our complaints into compelling reasons to seek him. Life, even for the richest of the rich, will be dissatisfying at some level. And it's, that's God's business card to say, would you consider my great work? You've got plans, but this is my planet. And because of that, I understand the purposes for which you will encounter every one of your difficulties in life. And all of them are designed to aim your heart at me. Will you let me be center? Will you let me address the enemies? Will you let me take ownership for your life? That is the appeal of the gospel. It speaks into the greatest of all human crises. But the greatest of, or even more so, with more, even more gravity is this. The Bible tells us that God is angry with the unbeliever every single day. That is a crisis. But in the same way that the gospel declares the anger of God against the, believe, the unbeliever every single day, he also cushions it with grace by saying, I don't want you to experience this grief. Would you come? Would you come to my son, Jesus Christ? Would you come? Would you, would you respond to him in a way that allows you to have shielding from God's wrath? This is what the gospel does. It speaks directly into the human crisis. I want you to consider, uh, as our prayer team is kind of positioning themselves, and for those of you that uh, are aware that we, do, we have been um, kind of celebrating and, and, and practicing our intentional commitment to making disciples, I want you to think about a person in your life. Think about two people. Think about yourself. Lord, where in my life am I crying out against you, craving against you, and criticizing your work? And then I want you to think about someone else. A person in your life who is prone to complaints. Maybe you're prone to complaints. I want you to think about those people. Are you prone to complaining? Would you, I, I would just love to invite you to just go spend some time with the people who are standing over there that they might be able to pray with you and just kind of help you in that area of your life so that we don't turn the conversation of our heart against the Savior. I also want to ask that if you've got a name, if you've got a name of a person up here on this board, someone who you're praying specifically for their salvation. You said, Lord, Lord, Lord I, I want to see this person come to know Christ. Know that that person is where they are. They are crying in some way. They are craving in some way. And they are criticizing what is happening in their life in some way. They are proverbially blaming God. And even if they never open their mouths and blame God, by taking their own life's destiny into their own hands, they're saying, God, you're not qualified to do this. So they're criticizing the plan of God for their lives. 
If you have a person whose name is written on that board, I want to ask you, if, if you haven't written it, go write it. If you have written it, circle it if you've had a gospel conversation. If you've had a gospel conversation, would you go up there and just maybe put a check mark and say, you know what, I will pray. I want to pray with my person. I want to have a prayer with this person where I can kind of load into their lives, you know, find out some areas where they're craving, where they're crying, and where they're maybe complaining or criticizing God's plan for their lives. And, and I want to just pray that, that I help them guard their heart. I want to help them guide their heart. Would you be careful to do that? This is your moment to do that. You can get up and move. I know we kind of, we kind of like a frozen or whatever type of thing. And if you, if you handle all that, stay where you are, I guess. But I'm going to pray for us while Ben's doing that. I'm going to pray for us, and you can move, right? Feel free to move. You're writing names on there that you have of a person that you know that does not know the Lord, that you're going to commit to pray for them. Not pray for them. You're going to share the gospel with them. For a person you have shared the gospel, you're going to pray in the areas where they're crying, craving, and criticizing the Lord's plan. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, I'm thankful to you that you heard our cries and you were gracious to come in and with compassion, show us our need for Jesus in our midst of our cries, in the midst of our cravings. I thank you, Lord God, for all the mercy that you've shown me in the moments where I have criticized your work unknowingly or either directly. I just opened my mouth against your plan because it wasn't going the way that I would have plotted it out. Lord God, I thank you for your mercy. And Lord God, I thank you for these folks who are moving, who are going to be prayed for because they recognize that in their lives they got some pockets of critique, they got some pockets of crying out against you, and they're just asking, Lord God, that you would just help them in these areas. I pray, oh God, for the names that are on that board, that, man, we would be able to just kind of be a great tour guide into your grace for these people who need to learn how to guard their hearts, how to guide their hearts, and how to guard their hearts. But before they can do any of that, Lord God, would you help us to have the words to teach them how to give their hearts over to you more fully and completely? Lord God, do a work in us so that as we try to do a work in these lives that we don't show up as hypocrites. We need you. We cannot do it on our own. It is your word that brings conviction. But Lord God, may we be carriers of that word. It's your word, that, it's your spirit that brings conversion. But will we be so diligent to be those who will bear witness of the work of the spirit in our own lives? It's your son, Lord God, whose image you are converting and transforming us to so that we wouldn't be critique, people who critique you. But Lord God, would you also let that same work happen in us? Help the conversation. This name we pray. Let's go ahead and, and do what we said. Let's, let's establish that perimeter of praise around our hearts, shall we? Let's praise the Lord.